0: A month and a half after landing in JFK with my son and our cat, whom I forgot at the airport and had to turn back and pick
2: up. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Collider Ladies Night. I am beyond thrilled to welcome Connie Nielsen to the show because we get to celebrate not one, but two new releases, nobody, and then also... Zack Snyder's Justice League. Connie, welcome to the show and congratulations. Thank you so much. I am
0: so excited to be here on the show.
2: All right. So I warned you. We go back to the beginning with Ladies Night. And the first question I have for you is, do you remember the moment when you first said to yourself, I have to be an actor? Was it sparked by a personal experience, seeing an idol do it? You name it.
0: My mom. My mom was an actor um, at this little review and variety show that we have in our city. It is called the Revue. And it is a um, tradition, journalistic tradition that goes back um, more than 150 years. Um, And I started doing that with her on stage when I was 15. I remember watching my mother transform every night for the whole summer for three months and just becoming this person, and I saw how being that and doing that took her out of her depressions and made her happy. And my great-grandmother had movie theaters and so did my great-great-grandparents. So I saw all these black and white pictures when I was a kid of all these glamorous people. Uh, My grandmother, my very scary looking, very glamorous uh, great-grandmother, uh, you know, meeting with all the Danish actors at the studios in Copenhagen when she was buying films. And I heard all of these stories of them about them traveling to Berlin and to Paris to buy these films. And so to me, movies were something that my family had always done, but never in front. My great grandfather had even made a, uh, uh, a comedy as a director. So I had all of these people, but I didn't know them. I just saw them on these pictures. And I just thought, I want to do that. I want to be an actor and I want to play these stories and I want to tell these stories.
2: You painted so many vivid pictures as you were running through all of that. And that makes me curious when you first committed to pursuing acting as a career and you pictured yourself making it, what exactly did you picture way back then? Was it becoming a movie or TV star? Uh, Was it uh, excelling in a certain genre or anything like that?
0: To me, it was the movies. The movies were this thing. On Sundays, uh, you know, I grew up in a small socialist country, Denmark, and there was one TV channel. And most of the time, you had, like, uh, uh, documentaries on, you know, factory workers in Yugoslavia. And uh, not much else, but on Friday night, where you could see Don Johnson being, like, impossibly cool. As I grew older, I then started seeing more movies that really just grabbed my fantasy. And to me, like when I saw like all the President's Men, all of that stuff, they're changing the world. And I've always been like obsessed with justice. And to me, films, they can change the world. And so that became another part of it. Like I was looking also to tell stories that could be part of of changing the world a little bit.
2: So I know you mentioned that there was only one, uh, one TV channel back then. And I, I know very little about the industry in Denmark, but when you commit to wanting to make that your career, were there, I guess, the tools and the resources that you needed there in order to uh, make your first steps? Or did you have to look elsewhere for that? I had no clue
0: of how to get to that at all. All I knew was that my, uh, we had an uncle who was living in Paris and I could stay with him. That was it. And so... My grandmother called my uncle and said "Can you make sure that Connie can stay with you and you can protect her and so I came to Paris as an 18 year old just just decided on I'm going to become a movie star and and when people asked me if I was you know educated I just said yes because I had done three years of review and variety shows every summer where I had you know stood up on a stage like impossibly and in, insanely mortified to stand in front of these peers, my the parents of my friends and also parents of my not so friends um, uh, and being like ridiculous and, and being mortified about like the just sheer indignity of being an actor and being unable to to cast that away from me, being unable to remove that obsession, um, and so when I came to Paris, I was just absolutely fearless, and I just you know remember I was sitting at a dinner where there was a producer who then you know noticed that I don't know maybe he just saw that fearlessness or something, and also like the fact that I was like deeply a bookworm. I had been reading everything in books, so. I just assumed that whatever I was reading in the book was the same as real life uh, experience so I just spoke as if I had like this worldly uh, view obviously at 18 it probably sounded ridiculous but um so he asked me if I was uh if uh, if I you know if I had trained I said yes uh, I am an actor I am trained and I'm here to break through and he literally invited me to do my first audition the next day And I did. And I went and I got it and uh, met with the director, did my audition and did my first film with Jerry Lewis.
2: It sounded like you had all the confidence in the world going into that meeting and you had that kind of drive. But what was it like standing on set opposite someone like Jerry Lewis?
0: I was so not conscious of who he was at all. Uh, I knew that the French were crazy about him. I thought he was like this. He was, first of all, super frustrated with the French. And so he voiced that to me all the time. And then like we were in Tunisia shooting. uh, It was uh, produced by Tarak Ben Amar, And so we were shooting in Tunisia. And there was this old toothless lion in a cage. And he was supposed to be super scary. And they could not get him to wake up. He was just sleeping all the time because they had fed him too much, I guess. And so we were literally having to play super scared, locked up in this, this cage with this lion. And the only thing I remember from doing that is not the lion on the proximity of the lion, it's the fact that all of a sudden <laughs> Jerry starts opening his shirt and starts showing me the scar of his heart operation that literally went from here all the way down to here and said, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, I just fucking survived heart surgery. And now I'm in a cage with a dead lion. (laughs) That was my first movie experience. And also, by the way, my first movie, Kiss. He was like in his 50s and I was 18.
2: (laughs) So... What happens after you add that title and, you know, having starred alongside Jerry Lewis to your resume? Because everyone always talks about, you know, when you get that first big opportunity, you want to either have something else in your back pocket or some sort of idea of how to take the next step. So what did you get from that experience that served as your next step?
0: Nothing, like nothing. And what's worse was that, you know, I was this tall blonde woman and they kept on like sort of like asking me to play like these like bombshell blondes. And I was not into that at all. So then I finally get like offered a TV series in Italy called Colletti Bianchi and I go and I do that. And again, I have like this odd experience with like my leading man, Again, I am ludicrously young in comparison to this guy who's probably in his 40s and uh, is this uh, Italian, uh, very lovely uh, comedian called Giorgio Faletti. And who is a big star in, uh, you know, on this Canale Cinque that we're doing this with. And I'm playing uh, an Italian uh, person, but I obviously point out to the producers that I uh, do not speak Italian, that I only speak French and in English and German, but not Italian um so they say oh don't worry we're gonna be dubbing you like that's what everybody does in italy and in fact i've seen that you know all of the Fellini films are all dubbed you know uh so they just like we're really good at this this is what we do i go to milan i start getting ready to shoot and literally a week before shooting they start telling me um you are not going to believe it but you are going to be part of the first uh, TV series to be done in presa diretta, meaning sound recorded on set. Uh, I, I, I said, but um, but I, I don't speak Italian. Do not worry, we're going to give you a coach, and we're going to give you an Italian teacher on top of that. And I literally get uh, a production assistant who sits down with me and starts helping me go through this giant um, dictionary, this thick, because it turns out that every Italian word has 15 different potential meanings. And, um, and so I, I realized that as we start shooting, I have to learn 18 pages a day of dialogue. And so in the beginning, I don't understand what I'm saying. And I'm literally just, I've learned all my lines by heart phonetically. Like I just, they're like a song. And you know everything is like da 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 di da da do da da do, you know. And uh, at the ends, and it's just like trying to remember: whether it an a ah or an o oh or an e at the end? And and then after three months of this, not understanding word one of what I'm doing, I all of a sudden realize I am speaking Italian. And so the next six months, I understood, spoke, read and realized I had now, in fact, mastered that language. Uh, it was three months of unbelievable stress and no sleep, but I did learn to speak Italian.
2: I feel like I tried all my life to learn other languages. I studied Hebrew for five years and did not really get very, I should have just been in a movie and I should have learned through a movie. It worked, it
0: totally worked. <laughs> But I feel like it took like probably like two, three more films and in fact going to America before I found my place. I feel like in Europe, I was condemned to always be the blonde. Larry Castan, who was casting French kits for the French girl in that, and said, look, you don't look like the French girl for me, so, you know, and, you know, and that's, and he said, you should go to America. And when I got there, a friend of mine then said, you know, um, uh, who, 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 what agent do you look for? I said, I really want a female agent because I really am so tired of being thought of as this blonde. I just don't want to be seen as a bombshell. I'm a super serious person and I didn't start doing this job so that I can play some, you know, idiot blonde. It's not what I want to do. Um, and so I said, so I, I, I really need to be uh, represented by women so that they don't cast me like that and that they see through that. They see past my whatever people see, that they see past that, that they see the person that I am and what I think of and the artist that I want to be. And so he said, well, you know, Claire Forlani is a friend. I'm going to ask her. So he then, um, so he asked her and she says, you know what? She should meet Estelle. Estelle Lasher and Perry Kipperman, you know, fantastic people. You guys, you should meet them. They're amazing. I sit down with them and just, they totally get me, like they totally get me. And they then say, okay, you have to actually give us six months where you're here for six months for real. So I come back with my kid 96. And um, and I said, I'm gonna, you know, use my savings. And we're going to stay there for for six months. And the first uh, couple of weeks i could offer these things um like right away and i but i and i won't say what it was but it was uh you know pretty pretty nice stuff but it wasn't what i wanted so i said no and then i met with tella hackford for devil's advocate and i just totally loved that script i loved like the deviousness and dark humor and i just and he just totally could see what I could do with that role. And, um, and, and, you know, a month and a half after landing in JFK with my son and our cat, um, whom I forgot at the airport and had to turn back and pick up. I <laughs> am um, on set uh, just off Fifth Avenue walking into a trailer. And as I sit down in the chair, I realize that uh, it's Al Pacino sitting in the chair next to me. And he turns to me and, and I literally start shaking. I'm like, I'm such a fan. And he's such a, you know, he's, he's like this, this, he's like this icon. And like this, like the, 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 the Uber priest of, 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 of freaking method acting. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die today because I, they're going to realize that I'm awful and I can't, I can't act and I, I'm not prepared. Um, and instead he turns to me and he says, Christabella, which is the name of my character. I saw your audition. You are amazing. I can't wait to do our scene together today. And I just like, just like perked up and I was just like, yeah. I'm gonna just motherfucking nail this one, and <laughs> and so I went up there and I was playing like this mysterious, super overconfident person. Obviously not feeling it, but I went in there with all the mystery in the world and all the overconfidence. And I'm literally standing on this 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 incredible terrace uh, overlooking Fifth Avenue. It's the two million dollar shot of the movie. They have lit up the entire uh central park we shoot the scene and then i'm told that we can't use it because um this f-stop was too low on the on photography but anyway that was sort of that was the the film that really got the rest rolling and then then came a couple of other films that um that maybe were like sort of like part of the thing but not really until we got to gladiator and then gladiator kind of like started
2: the ball rolling. I have so many questions. I can't leave devil's advocate just yet though. What, what was it like shooting the third act set piece in particular when you walk onto a set like that with so many nerves as it is, is something like that scheduled at the end of uh, principal photography? So at least you have time to kind of like find your footing opposite Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves. no, uh, it's very few films
0: where they think of what the actor needs. Most of the time, it's about which location needs to be ready, where and with whom, and how does this work together? A little uh, aside, I actually we shot inside of Donald Trump's apartment up in Trump Tower um, as well, and I remember walking in there as well, and he was like. We were using it as a as a background for for one of the scenes, um, and I was meeting with the director up there. Um, and so I, you know, that was another thing where you know, that was also my introduction into New York and seeing that. And uh, I believe like it was the bad guy's apartment that we were using there.
2: So now I just have too many Mission to Mars questions. <laughs> I think it's also on my brain because of current events. So. Actually, speaking of that, do you ever think about that movie, which I believe took place in 2020, now that we've had some major recent events in that sphere happen in 2021, and just like comparing and contrasting where you guys pictured us being and where we actually are?
0: I mean, it was so crazy when we were reading the word 2020. I don't know what we were thinking that we would have progressed into, you know, technologically and socially. But what was great that was that in fact, like the women were very much part of mission control. Um, and it was so cool that it was prescient that way, you know, and um, and modern that way too, you know, super modern. Um, and and then I thought that it was um, there were so many parts of the story that in hindsight, so many people still, even scientists, are finding, well, was there a life? then on mars and like those are questions where we were raising at the time and so a lot of the science has really held up and it's worth noting that we worked with buzz aldrin and and that we worked with nasa on the whole film my coach was story musgrave a rocket scientist and i remember we were in vancouver we were shooting up in vancouver and he invited me out to dinner and i was just plucking his brain he was the person who was part of the two team people who were the first free uh, spacewalkers uh, who repaired the, tele- the Hubble telescope when you remember it was put up and it didn't work. And so they had to go out there and actually walk in space and repair it. And he explained to me how they did that. And you know, that's one of the things I love the most about being an actor is that you get to have these incredible experiences with real life geniuses uh, that you get to learn from and listen to. And, and, he, and, and I was obviously so in awe of all of the stuff he showed me, he showed me the pictures he'd been taking with his own camera from when he was going around the earth and seeing the earth from outside. And I saw all those incredible pictures. And, and he said, you know what you see? you See all of those incredible uh, patterns and movements in the sand and on the ocean. And it's just like, we have like this unique and rare thing, which is the earth. And when I'm out there, I really notice that the most extraordinary thing about earth is life, and that's where you come in, Connie. You're an artist, and I love what you do and what you bring, and that's the, the, the true beauty of what humans are, it's art. And it was just so beautiful that here was a rocket scientist who thought that artists were the shit.
2: So much of that taps into why I'm obsessed with movies in general. It's just, it's the closest I can come to experiencing things that are out of my reach or even just understanding someone else's truth that is just so polar opposite to mine. I know Brian De Palma has referred to that experience as being relentless. Is that just because he was at the helm of that film or were you able to feel any of that while you were on set as well?
0: We were a lot of actors on that set.
2: And uh, I think that
0: We had some problems with the storyline still. I think that the stories were not really resolved in some of the cases, I think. Uh, But we also had like amazing actors like Don Cheadle. I just loved Don Cheadle. And um, I just loved working with him too. And and what a fabulous guy that he is, an amazing actor. Um, I remember I am standing inside of this giant white space and I'm asking him, what will that creature look like? Just so I know what I'm looking like, just so that I have a sense of what, what am I supposed to do? And it's worth noting that we're inside of what what these, these spacesuits would really look like. We are hoisted up underneath the sky, like underneath the ceiling of the thing and trying to emotionally react to, for example, my husband, dying in front of my face in the middle of the mission uh, and not being able to move a muscle in my body because in space you don't move like if you move at all that motion would send me flying through space like a dead stone you know or a piece of ice forever and ever in that direction that I moved and so having to do all of these things and being able to only communicate with my co-stars and with my director via this radio, I am wearing a cold suit underneath it through which they are pumping ice water so that I don't overheat and die inside of my suit. And at the same time, you know, when you're then walking, you can't hardly move. So at this point we're shooting the scene where I'm supposed to see what is this mysterious thing that's inside of this piece of ice on Mars? And and so he he can't really explain over the radio. So so he said, do you mind just coming over here and telling us like, what are we gonna be seeing? And uh, as he walks towards us, he falls over some cables and he Mm -hmm. literally gets this contusion on his foot if he doesn't actually break it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, I'll pretend that I understand what I'm seeing. Because <laughs> I, I just literally could not believe <laughs> Yeah, it was relentless that way.
2: <laughs> I understand. It's like, you know, if you got some frustrations and stressors and you bump your head, it's 10 times worse than it really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is like half Mission to Mars because it's, it's another thing that Brian said that kind of taps into your experience a little. He had mentioned, I believe this is in the documentary about him, that the Hollywood system destroys you and that that wound up being his last movie in the States. You, on the other hand, based on how you're describing everything, have had a wonderful experience in Hollywood. So what do you think it is about your experiences making movies in Hollywood that keeps you coming back to them? I mean, there
0: have been a few times. I am not going to lie. There have been a few times where in the process of making a movie, I have really questioned whether it's a place for women. Because um, it's, it's been... It's been really difficult at times to stand up for women on film and in film, uh, inside of films where the director was given absolute leeway to change the script completely and make it unrecognizable from the project that you actually originally signed on to. And then you were caught and you were kind of like, but my character is not supposed to be this character and, and we, what? And then all of a sudden it becomes a two-hander between two guys. And now the girl is like the third wheel on the, you know, on, 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 on the bike here. And it's just, it's been extremely frustrating. And I think that if you go into that, you have to have like an enormous amount of resilience and you have to know that it's worth fighting for what you are fighting for. And I think I do. I just do believe it's worth fighting for. I do think it's worth fighting for films that will ultimately tell different kinds of stories about women than the stories we're telling or we're telling up to now. And we're still figuring out how to tell those stories, but they're coming and they're being made. And I think that will change how we treat women in general, and
2: how we see them. Someone who who continues to need those movies, keep fighting that good fight and making sure more are coming our way. Because you're definitely doing that right now. I can't move forward without touching on Gladiator. There's so many scenes I want to ask you about. Uh, I'll, I'll go with one towards the beginning of the movie first when we first find out about Marcus Aurelius' death. And there's this one shot in particular of you and Joaquin where you basically need to convey like a whole bunch of huge emotions without having any dialogue except for, I think, Hail Caesar at the end, including a slap. So I don't know. How do you prepare to cover one beat like that where you have to do so much without saying anything?
0: It's another thing that female actors get really good at because our backstories are so often underdeveloped, our characters are underdeveloped and so you do an enormous amount of prep. You do like more prep than the guys do. You end up being a freaking expert on the stuff and you just end up just knowing more. And so you're taking all that knowledge and you're bringing it in and you're trans you're transferring that, you know, through any means necessary. And you can't help it because all of that prep actually also suffuses you and then infuses whatever you do or say. It can't help but come out. It's like a bunch of energy that you've internalized and then it can't help but come out.
2: You do it quite well in that scene. And then I get very hung up on the speech that Joaquin gives at the end and Yet again, you're just sitting there taking all of that information in and challenging us to process it through your expression alone and not being able to actually say how you feel, but it, it comes across so incredibly clearly.
0: Thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I also will just say that the experience of working with such thrilling actors like Joaquin and Russell, I mean, is something that just so enriches any scene you know you just never know exactly what they're going to do and that's the best feeling like when you're with an actor who just really just doesn't give a fuck about whether it's going to be too much out there but just goes and just has such courage and just just has no uh you know is never going to be predictable that is like a true gift when you're when you're doing great scenes like that.
2: That movie was, was, I guess, kind of a breakout role for both of them. So while you were on set and they were lesser known, was there any moment during principal photography where they did something and you just go, holy shit, they're gonna be huge?
0: Yeah, I think that almost all of the scenes were spectacular. I don't think that any of us really understood, we could feel that it was something special, but I don't think we understood just how privileged we were to be on there. We were so busy, you know, uh, complaining about the four pages of new script uh, uh, changes that we got every morning. And we we were just really working so hard to uh, make that vision come alive, you know? And we were all super deeply invested in it. I don't think that I was thinking in terms of, career making or anything like that. I I didn't have a mindset like that. It was all about the story. It was all about the story and how we were telling that story that mattered to us.
2: And it's probably that mentality that made sure that the film uh, stood the test of time and now is essentially an iconic piece of cinema. With those changes in mind, is there an example of a scene where you felt super confident about it and then got those changes and really had to kind of sit with it to let what you originally envisioned go and in order to embrace what those changes and what they meant to the movie overall?
0: I think that we did that all the time, in fact, you know, and I think it's part of of the learning of an actor is really also to just you know, be humble as well. You're not the one who's putting up the $175 million or however much it costs, you know, you're not the one who's doing that. That's, uh, that's, that's the studios. And you also have to, uh, you know, just, uh, just also remember that you don't know everything. You know, you can't see every single part of the film. And I think that, that it's really important to both, you know, uh, burn the candle at both ends for the character but to also at the same time be super humble in terms of, you know, you're also operating inside of the vision of the director and producers and financiers who who somehow managed to make this thing happen.
2: Before I leave Gladiator, what is going on with that sequel? Is it really happening or are uh, you, you know the, part of it? You know that it's,
0: it's, I know that it's on the ledger. So uh, let's just see when, uh, you know, when, when Ridley, uh, I know he had to do like the, one uh, or two other movies. And then I think it's on the ledger after that, but I'm not quite sure, you know, where it's at right now. So,
2: Assu- Assuming it is about uh, your son in the movie, are, are like you ready and eager to jump on board and continue her story?
0: I mean, it would obviously be amazing. And I know that a lot of people want to see more of that, you know, and I think that all of us are, are just going to have to look at that as a separate, different film, you know, but but with some of maybe the emotions and values that made Gladiator I think so powerful for so many people, which I really think were the underlying uh, values that we were talking about, uh, you know, tyranny versus freedom, and um, uh, and and you know the willingness to do what needs to be done in order to uh, free of, of people, you know, and I, I don't think that it would have been the same if it had just been a spectacle, it had to exist without within uh, a, uh, a sphere of values, I, I, I cannot tell you the countless times uh, where I've seen people come up to me. Uh, uh, and one day I'll tell you like some really cool stories about that, you know, mm-hmm. but come up to me and and, and start reciting back the, our dialogue because it touched them. It 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 moved them. And so I think that's where David Franzoni from the beginning just brought that that core feeling, you know, of how ideas can
2: inspire us. Absolutely. I have a feeling you get a lot of people coming up to you for this next one cuz we have to talk about Wonder Woman. So We've already talked about Gladiator and there's some other projects you've done that are huge, big blockbuster type movies. But committing to join a gigantic franchise like the DC film franchise is it's like a big, different kind of thing. So when you're considering whether or not to sign on for a film like that, what new things do you have to keep in your mind in order to make the best possible decision that might not be part of the decision making process before?
0: Well, I had to look at the amount of time that I had to be gone. I'm also the mom of a, at that time, only 10 year old boy, um, who I could not just be away from for, you know, five months. And so to the credit of Warner brothers, they just totally flew me back and forth every week from San Francisco to London. And I would be home. They provided me at home with a coach. Uh, a, uh, a, uh, an actual bodybuilder coach, uh, a uh, sword coach. And, um, and then they flew me every Sunday back to, uh, to London and then I'd go straight from the airport to uh, work out. And there was that moment where, you know, I just, all of a sudden, the, the bag that I brought with me back and forth I could take it in one arm and I didn't notice that I had taken it in one arm and just put it up there, like my carry-on with one arm. And I was just like, this is working. I am so strong right now, it's insane. And obviously for my body rhythm, it was completely crazy and ridiculous. And yet I was just so grateful that the studio was so understanding of you know, the needs of a mother to, to do that while we were shooting such a huge project and Patty was okay with, everybody was okay with it. Not only okay, but so supportive of it too. I was like
2: amazed, really. I love hearing that. Um, Recently I was lucky enough to have Robin Wright on the show and What she kept emphasizing when talking about Wonder Woman was how Patty just really pushed to make her movie her way. And at one point, she specifically says that she gets what she wants without being mean about it, which is it sounds like such a simple but It's so important. And I don't understand why everybody in the industry doesn't adopt that approach to getting what they want. But anyway, is there any example you remember from shooting that movie where you saw Patty use that skill set in order to make the movie that she wanted to make? Ah, uh,
0: absolutely. I mean, she was very clear about like, you know, what the Amazons were supposed to be, you know? And I think that that had originally been like some idea that the Amazons had been deeply traumatized by some kind of like horrible event um, that involved rape, mass rape. And, and, uh, and Patty just said, no, no, no. We're not going to put that on those Amazons. Uh, we don't want to start out seeing them as victims, and why would we? Let's just get rid of that part and and make sure that these are these are heroes in their own term. They're not like, uh, you know, they've not been, you know, part of the victims of history. You know, they're they are these unbelievably. Uh, uh, courageous women, we're not gonna saddle them with a trauma uh, from the outset. We're going to uh, have them uh, be received by people on the basis of who they are. What is their culture? Why are they so fierce? What does it mean to live on an island where there are no guys? That made so much sense, you know? You needed them to have like a very uncomplicated background in order to be able to just accept them as the heroes that they are. And, um, and that's part of her clarity. The reason why she does that is, and gets, gets what she needs to get is because she's very clear. She has very clear thinking and she's able to transmit those ideas in a very clear way. Um, and so she doesn't need to be mean. She doesn't need to push the envelope because she is right. She's thought it through. She knows what she's talking about. She's super well-prepared. She has great instincts. She's a great director and she's a great visionary in
2: her own right. She sounds like a great leader on set too. And that's another reason why I admire her so, so much. Yes, she is.
0: She is great. And there is not a time where she will not take the five minutes to talk to even like the most minor character on the set. She'll remember their names and she'll be like respectful of them. And and she will give them that moment on screen as well that registers and is necessary to really bring together what is a community. If you only have three people in a community and you don't know who all of the other people are and you don't recognize in them a distinct personality, you don't really have a community. And that's how she does it. Like she creates like this whole full-fledged experience by having that razor eye for detail,
2: that's how it should be. All right, taking a step forward in the DC franchise now, we're going into uh, Justice League, and I guess first I have to ask you about principal photography on Justice League proper because I don't, I don't really know your your schedule and how everything kind of fell out with that. So. You, know, you were kind of touching on this earlier as an actor you only have so much control over everything so where was your mind at when you found out that Zach wasn't going to get to finish the film had you already shot your stuff is is it what were you shooting later on in the production process what what exactly happened there I'd
0: already shot my stuff and um, then I hear the tragic and almost inconceivably awful news um, And as a mother, as a parent, um, it was, that was just like, oh my God, my heart just went out to him and to Deborah. And I just felt like that's just something that, uh, you know, any, any one of us would have such a hard time to recover from, you know, from something like that. I felt so sad for him. I know how family oriented they are. They have the kids around them to come on set. You know, they're really so family oriented for them to go through that terrible, awful trauma was, was horrific. To therefore have to step away from the film um, was also horrific and not be able to finish uh, what he was doing on top of the fact that he had been really uh, shook, I think, and and misunderstood on uh, batman versus superman and i think that a lot of people were worried about where he was whether he was going to be able to recover from the the critical reception of that film and i think that it must have felt like an enormous loss to not get to finish that film and bring it out and so to see how the fans really rallied around him and it's just that's amazing. I remember when I saw this other singer who also had not been able to uh, release a sophomore album, and again, it was the fans who went in there and had said, "You know we want to see we want to hear that album, you need to release it." and they did and because those fans were were you know vocal enough and organized, and they really were so organized online for Zach uh, in so many different ways. And then there were a lot of developments also at Warner Brothers and with streaming, I guess that Zach, you know, had recovered enough from his trauma to be able to say, you know, I could do it this way, but this is how I want to get it done. And I just, I, first of all, it's so rare for a director to get this opportunity to do this. It's so rare for the fans to actually get to see the, the the thing that they've been clamoring for um so i am extremely happy for zach and deb and for the dc fans and for all of us that we get to see this creation i look forward to sitting there for four hours straight uh
2: watching the whole thing i am uh I'm mighty eager myself. And, you know, in, in hindsight to hear you describe the whole process, it it, bra- it breaks my heart a little that from our angle of it, you only get so much news as things are progressing. You don't You don't really know the truth behind a certain situation. And sometimes you got to pump the brakes, take a breath and wait until the time is right to get the full story, especially when it's of a personal nature like this. So my heart goes out to him and I'm so glad that he's finally getting the opportunity to see his vision through to fruition.
0: Deborah's too, you know, they work so closely. And so it really is a family that has uh, somehow rallied together to to get that done, which is pretty extraordinary. And I know that everyone else, uh, Patty, and I know also uh, 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 the, the, you know, the number of other, you know, directors who are involved with the DC verse, they've all really been, uh, you know, supporting Zach and, 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 and t- teaming up behind him to support him.
2: I love hearing that. And when they give his cut of the movie, the go ahead, is there anything you have to do at that point? Or is it basically just using the material that we've seen in the theatrical cut?
0: Um, I didn't have to do it. As I said, we did get all of, uh, of the stuff that we were doing and we spent a long time getting that stuff. And so knowing that he wanted to truly pay homage to those Amazons and to get that that part of the film in there was so reassuring and so lovely. And it was, you know, when we were shooting it, I, he paid so much attention to it and he really gave it uh, an enormous amount of 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 attention. So I am very excited to see that part of the, the project also uh, being restored to, to, to what he saw. <laughs>
2: I want to play favorites, but the material on Themyscira is often my favorite in every DC movie you guys get to be a part of. so Thank you very much. Thank I'm you. playing favorites. All Thank right. <laughs> now we got another one to hit that's coming up right now. It is Nobody, which I don't know if anyone can actually see it, but it's a hardcore Henry DVD right behind me. I'm a big fan of Elia of and his style and what he does. So before you sign on for this movie, his only other movie is Hardcore Henry and it's shot in a very, very specific way. So how does that movie influence your expectations when you're about to work with him?
0: Well, it did make me feel super relaxed and uh, just like interested. You know, I like when you can just like lean back and trust that the director just has this, they have a vision, they have a style, they know what they're doing, they know what they want to do. And so all I have to do is really just, you know, focus on what is the truth happening in this scene right here, what is it that I want to do?
2: When you are on set with Bob, do you ever get the opportunity to watch him in his more fight heavy scenes? Or is that that your day to film?
0: No, that's not my part of the film, but um, it was, uh, but you know, sometimes, I mean, he would come back from uh, having shot some of those scenes and I'd see him the next day and he'd been like working until impossible hours in the cold and uh, getting hurt probably, and just like soldiering on. You know, he is such a professional and he is so dedicated uh, to this film and to the story. And, and really is like, I think also rejoicing at this opportunity to reinvent yet another, uh, or rather invent yet another side to his um, career and the characters that he, he puts out there and that he does so well.
2: Oh, I have more to ask about Bob, but that makes me want to ask you just in general, because you, you've you done a pretty wide variety of work. Is there any side to yourself that you're still waiting for someone to let shine through in a particular role? For sure.
0: For sure. <laughs> I think that I, like, I really think you know, like, one of the things I always loved when as a kid was anything to do with lawyers. Like, In fact, it was sort of between being a lawyer and I, I had just read This incredible book called Knock on Any Door when I was like 15, and I'd stayed up all night to finish it. And I was so incensed at like the injustice to uh kids done in juvenile hall in America. And I just was like outraged by how the book really painted like a picture of a whole system that is really setting children up to fail rather than to grow come out of that system stronger and better and resolved to live a full life. And so I really think that I am still waiting to play, not just the lawyer and devil's advocate, but like the lawyer who goes out there and takes, you know, helps kids. And like, I really feel like there's a side of me there that needs to be, you know,
2: explored. I I truly would like to see that, but I would also really like to see a sequel to Nobody where he passes on some of his know-how to you and you're the one kicking ass in round two.
0: Well, one of the things we were talking about when we were shooting the Nobody was, you know, why did they meet in Italy? And uh, what was she doing there? And uh, what is it that we don't know about her story?
2: Oh, man, I'm not going to stop thinking about that now. (laughs) Well, while you two were on set, because you were talking earlier about the training you did for Wonder Woman, did the two of you swap any, I don't know, training horror stories or advice or anything like that?
0: No, I wouldn't presume. I was pretty sure that he was pretty well prepared. I wouldn't have like gone in there and and started doing that at all,
1: you know. And also,
0: like, I just really appreciated the fact that he wasn't trying to build into like some kind of He-Man. You know, he was really committed to being a believable version of that action hero who is hiding inside any nobody. You know, I thought that that was part of the core thing. And I really so respected that he wasn't like, like going overboard and beefcaking up at all. Like he was really just like committed to a
2: believable version of that guy. He which does is exactly that. Big part of the reason why I love the movie and the soundtrack, which is incredible. So we always end Collider Ladies Night with a handful of random questions, whatever comes to my mind at the moment. First one I'll give you is what is the most recent TV show that you binge watched? No, unbelievable.
0: I could not freaking believe how amazing that was and how important that was. And that's the kind of, of stuff that I just so believe in as content. Um What an incredible, uh, incredible uh, TV series that was.
2: Excellent choice right there. What is the most cherished prop or piece of wardrobe that you've kept from set?
0: I have a shawl that my character wore in Gladiator that uh, was given to me by our costume designer. And um, that's really treasured, very treasured.
2: I was hoping you would say something from that movie. Did you pick up any new hobbies while we've all been in lockdown?
0: Um, I have uh, taken to, uh, uh, to, to write. So I am writing and I've also started um, meditating, which I've never been able to keep myself, you know, in it. But right now I'm on the sixth day and I'm going to continue. And I'm just loving that. So much.
2: I'm impressed. Someone convinced me to download the calm app and admittedly, I haven't touched it since downloading it, but maybe this is a good reminder that I need to, I'm just
0: loving it. It feels like a little bit, like if I do that for me, it just really, it does something back for me.
2: I like that. All right, this last one we always end on and it's a little bit of a deeper one. You could take it deep or light, whatever you prefer. What is the biggest fear that you've ever had that you've actually managed to overcome?
0: I've managed to overcome. Ah, uh-huh. That's wrong. You know what? I've always been like an overprotective mom I have never let my children walk out the door without saying "I love you," uh, because I've always been like one of those anxious moms. I like people always see me as like this uh, superwoman, strength, blah blah blah. But I have like this anxiety because I love my kids so much that you know that I can't stand it. And I've just tried to learn to trust more both in the world and in life. Um, and in them. Uh, so I do feel like I'm a little bit starting to be just a little bit less over, uh, over cautious and uh, not so, such a worry and just really to just um, trust life just a little bit more.
2: You don't stop the I love you thing. My whole immediate family does that where we'll never leave each other without saying it before we go.
0: Absolutely. There's no way you do not do that. And then another thing is we don't say
2: goodbye. We always say, see you later. I'm going to adopt that one as well. And I'm going to get that trend going in this household. (laughs) Connie, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Oh my God,
0: it was so fun.
2: It This was a blast. I'm so happy to be able to highlight your filmography. I didn't say a single sea fever uh, question, so I'll just tell our viewers, it's streaming right now on Hulu, so you could check that out. And then on top of that, we've got Zack Snyder's Justice League hitting HBO Max on March 18th. And then right after that, it's Nobody in Theaters on March 26th. Check it all out and all the movies we've been talking about this whole episode because Connie's incredible. <laughs>